July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Joan Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery. Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles and watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research and I know there's so much more to the story that's never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder Pat Thresher, for many years. And so when Rick asked me to help him bring the behind the scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 Tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into 12 seasons. The episodes in season one tell the story of the first trip in 1989. Season two deals with the next expedition in 1991 and so on. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now let's get to the next episode. Hi Rick, when last we left you, you and your crew were about to depart Pango Pango for your 2001 expedition to Niku. Take us from there. Let's see, we, we traveled to Pango from California to Hawaii and then down to Pongo Pongo on August 24th of 2001. And we arrived at Nicomaroro on August 30. Because so we spent a couple of days in Pongo getting things sorted out. And, uh, and was Naya there already? When you... Naya had just arrived. Okay. One of the things that we did in Pongo, we had... Car Burns, our forensic osteologist, our bone lady, oh. with us, and she wanted to do an experiment to see how the wildlife on Niku handled carcasses, dead stuff, because hmm. we had this story about how the coconut crabs had gone off with the bones, and well, do they really go off with bones, and how fast does something break down in that environment? Oh, so she wanted to do an experiment, so... While we were in Pongo, she went to a store and bought a lamb shoulder, <laughs> frozen lamb shoulder, which she put it in the freezer aboard Naya. Hmm. And she was going to put that out and record what happened then. Okay, so that kind of thing. We were making sure we had everything we needed. So, yeah, we, um, we sailed out of Pongo and arrived at Niku on August 30. We had a dive team, and we had as our medical person, a fellow named Jim Morrissey, who was Amelia Earhart's great nephew. What? Yeah. Really? Okay, so Amelia... How did Amelia, that happen? <laughs> Amelia had a sister, Muriel Morrissey. Yes. And Muriel 
uh, married Albert Morrissey, and they had two children, a boy named David and a girl named Amelia, Amy. Uh. And David, the son, had a son, James, and Jim Morrissey <laughs> was a trained EMT and real outdoors guy. He could he could do anything, uh, wow. build anything out of anything. He was fantastic. Well, how did you hook up with him? Did I, he find you? I I think he found us. I we didn't, <laughs> sure didn't find him, but <laughs> he read. Oh, I see you're investigating my great aunt's <laughs> disappearance, and I'm who I am. I'm this experienced EMT and wilderness medical expert. And so, yo, come on, you know. (laughs) So we had Jim Laborde. That was great. Yes, that sounds Um, neat. That was an incredible team, the the 2001 team. Five members of that team later served on our board of directors. Really? Yeah. Just great, great people. The objectives we had set out for ourselves... We wanted our divers to check the reef for something we had noted earlier that year. In April of 2001, now again, this is, this is the end of August. Back in April of 2001, we got our first satellite imagery of Nicomororo. We'd, ah. we'd never had satellite imagery before, and we actually contracted with a company called Space Imaging, they were just starting to do satellite imagery commercially. They'd been doing it for the government for a while, hmm. but we contracted with them, and they gave us a real break on the rate. And so we had our first satellite photo, which was great because we had always had to rely on these old aerial photographs. Right now we had current stuff, and it, it's like having a map uh, that that shows you where the every tree is. Yes. So and you can to you have can the comparison check. from the early. You, you can see how the ions change, yeah. but you can always uh, check against what you're doing now. And okay, we're right here. I see. Okay, that's that's this spot on the satellite image because there's a clearing just like this in the in this spot. So great, great tool. But in that satellite imagery, we saw what seemed to be anomalous pixels (laughs) Uh, just off the edge of the the reef flat where we felt quite sure the airplane had gone into the water. There were some pixels getting down to the finest detail of this satellite imagery that seemed to be the wrong color. They they were a different color. Maybe... Were they in the water? Yeah, they were in the water. You can see into the water a little way in the satellite photos, mm-hmm. maybe 20 feet, 25 feet, something huh. like that. Not much, but Jesus. And we were, we were so thrilled to have the satellite imagery. We were trying to do more with it than you really could. I mean, that, that's <laughs> often the way with new technology. Yes. And of course, today, <laughs> today somebody finds the Earhart aircraft on Google Earth about once a week. Is that true? I will. I get emails, <laughs> and hey, hey, I was. It's right, <laughs> and and they'll send me screen captures and oh. coordinates and everything. And I said, no, that's the wreck of a British freighter that went aground in 1929. It's not an airplane, or no, that's that's just 
a shape in the coral that happens to look kind of like an airplane, but I have stood on that spot and I can tell you that there's no airplane there, but it's consistent. Are they all looking around the coup or are you getting them from all over the world? Oh, I get them from everywhere. Now, the other other, uh, thing that happens all the time is in New Guinea, what is now Papua New Guinea, Anytime somebody finds an old airplane wreck out in the bushes, it's Earhart's airplane. <laughs> and they think it's worth a lot of money. And, and I just say, no, send me a picture. Just send me a picture. <laughs> and it's always World War II stuff, of course. Mm. So, but back in 2001, satellite imagery, Was brand it? new thing. Yeah. I mean, it's wonderful. How did it, how, how did it compare to what you get today as far as quality? Not that great. Now we get down to like a few centimeters resolution on satellite photography. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we wanted the divers to check that part of the reef and see if there's an airplane there. And we we also wanted them to check the lagoon. Right inside the main passage, there's a big delta of sand where we reasoned that things may have washed up and been buried in the sand. We're going to get that with metal detectors. And we're going to also look on the bottom of the lagoon just inside of that delta. We wanted to take a close look at the reef flat where our hypothesis said the airplane had landed to see if you really could land an airplane there. We wanted to go out there, walk around there, really take a, uh, a good hard look at it. Now, I'm an experienced pilot. Several of the others on our team were experienced pilots, and especially a gentleman by the name of Captain Skeet Gifford, who had been a United Airlines senior captain, uh, instructor, pilot, and after that had worked for NASA. Wow, that's a resume. On aviation, Skeet was, and still is, a a fantastic resource. We wanted to walk around on that reef. We had a couple of possible graves to excavate. We had left the last time after having identified coral slabs set vertically in the ground that sometimes they mark graves. Other times, they're property boundary markers. So you've got, is this a property marker or a grave? And the only way to be for sure is to dig it up and see if there's somebody in there. Mm. Okay, so there are a couple of those we wanted to do. And then we were still trying to pin down where it was that these bones had been found in 1940. Bones and, and artifacts, the parts of a woman's shoe, parts of a man's shoe, and dead birds and dead turtle and a campfire, where the castaway was found, where Gallagher, the British colonial officer, had found all this. We wanted to inspect the site that we had examined very briefly in 1996, looking for this tank that we hoped was an airplane fuel tank, but turned out to be just a water collection tank. And we had dismissed that site as being unimportant. But after we had found the British file describing the discovery of the bones, the description of where they were found seemed to match this site. We call it the seventh site because of a terrain feature there, a seven-shaped bare spot in the coral. We want to take a hard look at that. Maybe, maybe that's finally where the campsite is. So we want to go to the seventh site and really do some clearing and, and archaeological excavation there. 
There were a couple of other things we wanted to do that weren't directly connected to the Earhart investigation while we were there. So Gallagher, as we've said before, had died on Nicomararo. Right. He had returned to Nicomararo after a visit to Fiji in, this would be in September of 1941, a year after the bones were found. But when he returned, he was very ill and the doctor that was with them, Dr. McPherson, had operated on him, but he had died on the table. And he had been buried there on the island, and a tomb had been built over his grave. It's a concrete structure. It's about, <laughs> a terrible uh, way to describe it, but it's about the size of a doghouse um, and, and about the shape of a doghouse, but solid concrete. It's, it's huh. like this tomb. And on the end of it, it had a bronze plaque that had been installed there with an inscription on it that was recorded in the, in the official records, paying tribute to Gallagher and you know, what a wonderful guy he was. And we're laying him to rest where he would want to be laid to rest and oh. so forth. Except the plaque was gone. Oh, geez. It was some son of a had really? stolen that plaque. And that's just not right. So we had a replacement plaque made. Oh, that's so nice. Back in the States, out of bronze, very nicely done. Our replacement plaque said exactly what the original plaque said, which was, in affectionate memory of Gerald Bernard Gallagher, M.A., Officer in charge of the Phoenix Island Settlement Scheme, who died on Gardner Island where he would have wished to die on the 27th September, 1941, aged 29 years. Oh, no. His selfless devotion to duty and unsparing work on behalf of the natives of the Gilbert and Ellis Islands were an inspiration to all who knew him, and to his labors is largely due the successful colonization of the Phoenix Islands. R.I.P., erected by his friends and brother officers. And then below that, it's our replacement said, This plaque is a reproduction of the original, respectfully rededicated September 2001 by the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery. Oh, that's very cool. We had this plaque to install, so we wanted to do that. And we wanted to put a plaque on the main piece of the wreckage of the Norwich City that was still standing, oh. um, which is the engine, the big triple expansion steam engine that towered 20 feet up, and massive it's thing. up on the land. I mean, and, and it's right out there on the edge of the reef, yeah. washed by the waves. We had a plaque made to attach to that that said, in memory of the SS Norwich City crew members who lost their lives on this reef, November 30, 1929, respectfully dedicated by the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, September 2001. So we wanted to That's do so nice. that too. You know, we're, we're paying tribute to the people who had died on the island yes. uh, other than Amelia and Fred. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's kind of a haunted place. <laughs> a lot of people have died there. <laughs> we wanted to be sure we weren't some of them. Okay. <laughs> but before we went out there, I had written something to the Tiger membership, sort of explaining how we were going about this next expedition. And I'll, I'll just read what I wrote because I can't duplicate it better than I wrote it back then. <laughs> Archaeology is a plodding science 
once described in a memorable Kelvin and Hobbes comic strip as the most mind-numbing job on the planet. <laughs> Tiger's discoveries about the disappearance of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, and there have been many, have not come in the form of Indiana Jones-style partings of the bushes, but in quiet moments of study and analysis. We'll consider the expedition to be a success if we are able to gather the information needed to test the hypothesis we have formulated, regardless of whether the results ultimately prove to be positive or negative. We'll feel like we've done a good job if we can do that without hurting anyone. We'll consider ourselves extremely fortunate if we come back from the expedition with a few promising bits and pieces of this and that, which, when subjected to further research and testing, move us a few steps closer to the answer to what really happened out there. But as always, we'll be hoping for that whiff of gun smoke. <laughs> well said. Yeah, I still kind of like that. Well, one of the other things we were able to do on this expedition that we'd never been able to do before is provide the Tiger membership with timely updates and reports on how it's going because we had satellite phones. Oh, yes. That... And we had a system devised. Because of the time difference, I would get up, oh, dark 30 in the morning. <laughs> I'd get up on the top deck of night with a satellite phone at 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning and call Pat, my wife, back in at that time, Delaware, and give her a briefing on what we had done the day before. Oh, that's now, so cool. I couldn't send her copies of pictures we'd taken or anything. We, we, all we could do was make, make a satellite phone call, but we could give her an up-to-date report, and then it would be noontime, her time. And in that afternoon, she would sit down from the notes from our phone call and write up a daily report for the Tiger website. Wow, I that's and, great. And have it online by that evening. So everybody, just a day behind, uh, had an updated report. Wow. Great system. And she's really good about taking just <laughs> rough notes from something she had talked to me about and turning it into, into really interesting reading. Wow. Which is good because we weren't finding anything, <laughs> as usual. You know. The divers went out and looked at these anomalous pixel areas and there's nothing there uh, and a car opened up one of the graves and now ah, there's nothing here but um, a child oh. and we we restored that grave carefully put it back did they bury them just in not in a container or box or or had the containers disintegrated it's, sometimes they seem to have just put them like wrapped them in a sheet or something oh, okay. which was gone but other other bones were in a, a wooden box oh, that huh. had pretty much broken down. Right. right. Interesting. But there was this one location where there was a big coral slab that really looked like it might be a headstone. And we were going to dig that and see if there was something there. And we started digging. And we dug. And we dug. And it got bigger and deeper, and it was going on and on. And there were hints that there might be something there, but maybe not. We need to keep going. And did you dig all the way around it? Like Oh, yeah. You, yeah. I mean, yeah th like this turned into a huge hole. Oh, geez. And hard work. But it was right there on the northwest shoreline. We're looking out on the ocean. Mm -hmm. One day while that's going on, the cameraman, Mark Smith, and I were standing there. 
And I heard this sound, this buzzing sound. And I looked out and one of the skiffs from Naya was going past. And I turned to Mark and I said, you know, I don't like the way that outboard sounds on that skiff. And Mark says, that's not an outboard. Check that out. And he points to the horizon. And there's this little speck coming over the horizon in the air. A helicopter. From where? Well, that was our thought. Yeah. <laughs> Question. <laughs> what? And it's a little helicopter. It's a huge 500. Oh, so it had to be water-based, like based on our yeah. ship. And within just a few minutes, uh, a ship appeared. Uh, <laughs> it had been hull down over the horizon. Right, uh, right. Okay, so we've got a little helicopter that's used by a tuna trawler to go out and spot for oh, schools of tuna. That's a job. Yeah. And so the helicopter comes right over us and lands someplace uh, back of us a little ways. And we're, we've got a radio and we're monitoring radio traffic. And the uh, captain of the tuna boat hails our ship and says, hey, you know, uh, what are you guys doing? And our captain, his name was Fritz, Captain Fritz, says, well, we're here with an archaeological expedition uh, looking at the island. And um, what are you doing? Oh, we're on our way back to Samoa with a full hull of tuna. And we thought we'd just stop by and do a little local fishing and stretch our legs. And and, uh, the captain says, well, uh, that's great, but you should know that we have a Kiribati Customs <laughs> representative aboard. <laughs> and of course, unspoken was you're absolutely forbidden to do what these guys were going to do. <laughs> you know, it's protected waters. You, you can't right. do that. And so there's this long silence on the radio. <laughs> and I turned to Mark and I said, Mark, we just got ourselves a helicopter. <laughs> How did you work this out with the... Well, I I jumped in and said, well, as you know, the Caribous regulations frown on that sort of thing, but I'm sure it won't be a problem. However, you know, we saw your helicopter come over, and for a long time we've been wanting to get some good low-level aerial photography of this island. And if it's not too much to ask, we'd appreciate it if you could kind of give us a ride. <laughs> Oh, we could do that. Yeah, that's not anything else you need. Yeah, this is fine. Sure enough, Mark and I go to where the helicopter is. And the pilot has been monitoring all this, and he knows the deal. Sure, guy, what do you guys want to do? I said, well, okay, your helicopter is set up for just two people. It'll carry four, two in front and two in back, but the whole back end of the ship is cleared out of everything and the doors are off it's just bare back there so uh, you've only got two seats so what i want to do is i'll get in the other seat up front and i will you and i will go around the island and i will show you what i would like you to show our cameraman then we'll come back and land Uh, i'll get out and our cameraman will get in and you'll take him out and he will shoot what i've shown you that we want to see okay good plan so I get in, strap in, off we go, and we fly around the island. I said, Yo, I want to do this. We're down, down here. This is what we call the seven site. You can see it. Now, we have people working there, so I want to be sure we get good shots of that. 
We want to go down here over the southeast tip where the old Coast Guard Lorraine station was. We want that. Then we want to come up the other side and so forth and so on. And then I'd like to really do sort of a simulated approach like we think Earhart did when she landed. Oh, yes. Do that. Okay. He's, yeah, yeah, we can do all that. So we go back and land. I get out. We get Mark strapped in, and they're getting ready to pull pitch and get out of there. And I can't stand it. <laughs> and I go up to the pilot and I say, "Hey, do you mind if I just kind kind of get up and back?" He says, "There's nothing back there, nothing to hang <laughs> on to, no way to strap." I said, "Look, <laughs> I spent a couple of years in the first cavalry um, air mobile. I've." Think you'll ridden, be okay? <laughs> I've ridden in a lot of bear helicopters, slicks. You know, and I'll be fine. He says, okay, it's your butt. Yeah, <laughs> climb aboard. So I got up in there, and off we go. And he's giving Mark the grand tour, and he's banking around, and, <laughs> and I'm grabbing for something to hang on to. But I'm just having a ball. Hanging out the door, you know, <laughs> the least. After we were through, I said, God, that was one of the craziest things I've ever done. But I'd do it again in a second. Oh, sure. Oh, it was Have more fun. fun. So, but we ended up with wonderful aerial photography well, that we then cut together into a, a a video presentation that's available on online. is an aerial tour in Nicomararo where I put voiceover on it, explain that this is this and this is that, and, this, and uh, it, it's it was great. So that was that was our helicopter. And amazing that that happened. It in was the just nowhere. pure serendipity. Yeah. Yeah. It happens. Wow. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, back on the island, Carr's taphonomy experiment, it's what taphonomy is the breakdown of organic material. Uh. And so she's got her lamb shoulder laid out and uh, visiting it every day to see what happens to it. Sure enough, it didn't take long at all for that thing to be pretty much completely decimated. So by the crab. Ha- haven't I seen time-lapse photography of that? That was a later experiment. Oh. This this was the, the, the first try at that. I was going to say, we, I we thought it have, was a pig. Actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, later, that's another whole story of the pig. But uh. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> but this was a lamb shoulder. And it went away very quickly. And it was clear that the crabs were carrying off bones. Just yeah. as well as... Now, at that time, we, we had misidentified the strawberry hermit crabs. These little guys that live in a borrowed shell about the size of a baseball, mm-hmm. and they're strawberry colored. And they're, they're strawberry hermits. But we thought they were juvenile coconut crabs. And so we thought they were the ones going off with the bones. Well, it turns out the crabs that, that go off with bones are more likely to be the, the land crabs sometimes coconut crabs will go off with bones, but that's not all that clear. And the strawberry hermits just aren't big enough to go off with... A big bone. Big bones. They they will go off with with little stuff. And they did go off with some of these pieces of the lamb shoulder. That was an interesting experiment. Hmm. And it confirmed that, yeah, okay, uh, Gallagher thought that crabs had gone off with the bones that he didn't find. And he was undoubtedly right. Back at the Seven site, things were looking good. I'm going to read from part of one of Pat's uh, daily reports during the expedition. She says, The real news is from the Seven site. First, let us recall one of the laws of expeditions. No matter how you set the boundaries of your search area, 
artifacts will be found just outside of those boundaries. <laughs> usually in an area which has been used heavily as a footpath by the entire team. <laughs> and that's exactly what usually happens. Everyone had been putting all their equipment down in an area which appeared to be uninteresting. Around lunchtime, our archaeologist reached for his day pack and found the strap tangled on something. When he dislodged it, the something came with it. And she wrote, Rick repressed his first answer. Oh, it's a moose antler. <laughs> and came up with a turtle bone? Yep. Skeletal structure of a turtle. No doubt about it. Gallagher had said that there were the remains of a turtle and dead birds. Right. And we soon started finding bird bones. Um, and many of them were blackened. You know, somebody's eating birds here. Cooked and then birds. we're finding fish bones. And they're little fish, not the big fish that the the settlers usually caught and ate. Mm. But these are these are the kind of fish that you might be able to catch out on the reef in a tidal pool. Right. Something that a castaway could get. Hmm. And these are little little fish, and the bones are burned. Hmm. So this uninteresting section was declared very interesting. We cleared it off and gridded it in two-meter sections and really started to do a, an archaeological excavation of, them, of those sections. We came up with a plate shards, ceramic plates, like, like a, a dinner plate. Did you have enough to identify when they were from? Not at that time. Hmm. Uh, later expedition, we determined that they were from the Coast Guard station because uh, one of them had a Coast Guard logo on it. <laughs> well, that's yeah. that's clear. And we we found a number of M1 carbine shells. The the, the Coasties had M1 carbines, oh. and they would go up there and apparently do target practice, and they'd bring plates from the mess hall oh. and blew them <laughs> apart. We also found pieces that turned out to be. Uh, like radio tubes, they would they would bring burned out oh, like vacuum tubes from the Loran station and, uh. and shoot at those. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, but we also found a couple of twenty two caliber brass shells. Hmm. Now, the U.S. government never issued twenty two weapons to the, the the Coast Guard, but Gallagher had a Colt Woodsman twenty two pistol. We know that from the inventory of his personal effects from after uh-huh. his death. So it looks like Gallagher was down here, and he's shooting at something. Hmm. He's got his pistol down here. Well, I have no explanation for that. So the site is turning out to be very interesting. There were clams. Uh, Tridacna gigantica. These are big clamshells. These clams, big enough so that you could hold one in the palm of your hand. Uh-huh. They're about that big. Now, these grow out in the lagoon and sometimes out on the reef, and they're very difficult to extract from where they're attached. And the Gilbertese don't do that. They do eat clam meat, but when they find clams, they cut them open where they are and take the meat out right there. They'll just slip a knife in and and cut the abductor muscle. These clams, some of them had been bashed open, with a heavy object, maybe just a coral rock. Mm-hmm. 
Others seem to have been opened from the backside, from the hinge side, kind of like you open a New England oyster. Oh. Others <laughs> others show no markings at all, like they were steamed open. Oh, okay. So a variety of ways right, of opening right. them. I mean, you could use it as a bowl or as a scoop or as a... These had, after the clam meat had been eaten, mm-hmm. had been all laid out together with the concave side up. To collect rainwater. Oh, I mean that's that's castaway behavior. Yeah. The Gilbertese have their big water tank. They don't need to do that. Right. Somebody's trying to collect rainwater in a desperate way. Right. This this is looking really good. You know, we thought, okay, we've finally solved that mystery. We now think we know where the the bones were found, where this this all happened, this castaways camp. Mm. One of the other things that I, I found it by accident. And most important things that you find are found by accident. It's just <laughs> the way it happens. I was working between uh, what appeared to be the castaway camp and the lagoon shore, making my way through some heavy scabola. And I came to a little clearing. And in that clearing, someone, and some somebody had done this. There's no question about it. Some person had collected up little pieces of what called staghorn coral little pieces of coral bright white much whiter than the gray coral rubble that's around and they had laid it laid this staghorn coral out in a shape that resembled a letter g this is the only way we could describe it it wasn't exactly a g but that's kind of what it looked like and And just on the on just, just on lying on the ground just lying on the ground how large? What size? It was probably two and a half, three feet tall. Oh, I mean, th- this yeah. is this is not tiny. Yeah. This right. is this is pretty big. Could not figure out what the heck this. Yeah, interesting. This was, and and still don't know. Huh. We we never found did any you, reference to any such thing. Did you photograph it? Oh yeah, we have many photographs of it, and you can you can actually see it in uh, satellite photo. <laughs> really. <laughs> I yeah. guess once you know where it is. If, if, if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And we saw it in, in later aerial photography, we got, yeah, it's... It's amazing in all those years it didn't get yeah. covered yeah. or it, windblown. Just cr- crazy. I, I have no idea. A question we were asking ourselves at that site was when we initially found it in 1996, near the tank, there was a depression in the ground where it looked like somebody had tried to dig a hole, but hadn't finished digging it uh. and just walked away. It was just coral piled around where somebody, and we thought, well, was somebody trying to dig a well? Eh, what? Right. But after we saw that, no, this is likely the castaway campsite, remember that it was a work party that initially found a skull, a human skull, uh. and buried it. And then Gallagher heard that story, came back and found the rest of the bones mm-hmm. and the artifacts. And ultimately, he dug up the skull uh, and, it's, and sent it back to Fiji with the other bones. So I wonder if this was the skull hole hmm. where he dug it up and never filled it back in because he didn't need to fill it back in. Or right. So we wanted to excavate that, that hole because if it was a skull hole, the skull had a few teeth, four or five teeth in it. Where are the other teeth? There's a lot of uh, teeth in yeah. a skull. Maybe... There are teeth in this in the hole. Hmm. Maybe teeth came out. 
and are still there. And God, if we can find a tooth, um, you can get DNA from a tooth. Right. It's protected right. in the inside of the tooth. So we wanted to open up that hole, which we did in hard work. The hole is actually in coral. Not just sand that you were digging. Oh, there's, there's no sand at the center yeah. side. No, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's it's coral rubble. Mm-hmm. And we took it down carefully, layer by layer. Mm-hmm. And what we discovered is that everything looks pretty much the same until you get it cleared down a little bit, and you find that there's one small section that looks different from the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And it gives the impression that this is actually two holes. There's an initial hole that was dug and filled in. And then somebody came back and dug a bigger hole around it and and then ultimately focused in on the little hole. Okay, that makes sense. If Mm. we're going back, we're going to dig up the skull. Where was it? Oh, it's around here someplace. So they have to dig it and they find this. That seemed to fit the hypothesis. Yeah, this is the skull hole. Yeah, interesting. And we're, we're quite sure that's what it was. Now... Another thing, over near that tank, we found the remains of what's called a Sasha light. It was a a 1930s vintage British flashbulb. Somebody's taken pictures with a flash. Now, on Nicomororo, if you're going to take pictures, even during the day, you're going to use a flash because the sun is so intense, the shadows are so Uh, intense you need fill flash hmm. if you're going to get a good picture Gallagher had a camera we know that again Hmm. from the inventory didn't say anything about a flash attachment yeah but maybe you wouldn't maybe you wouldn't I don't know now did Gallagher take pictures of the skull interesting to know I can't tell you how hard we've tried to find any photos that Gallagher may have taken on Nicomarara and they don't seem to exist there's no reference to them in any of the archival stuff, mm-hmm. we know he had a camera, he, and, he, and he had um, developing materials. So uh, we know he could develop pictures. It's inconceivable that he didn't take pictures, and, and yet they don't seem to still exist. Hmm. Now, one thing we did notice about the Seven site is that the strawberry hermit crabs, these little guys um, that swarm over any kind of car- carcass. So are they're like the hermit crabs that people keep as pets? No, no. Oh. These are bigger. The By, strawberry, like strawberry hermit they... lives in a borrowed shell about the size of a baseball. So, so got it. And up at the end of the island where the village was and where we come ashore because of the blasted landing channel, right. they always come ashore. Right. The strawberry hermits are very shy. As soon as people show up, they go skittering back into the underbrush and they climb into the trees and they, oh. they're they very shy. Down at the seven site, they're aggressive. That's odd. How far the apart to- are they? Well, it's a couple miles, huh. two and a half miles maybe, other end of the island. Now, of course, the population of strawberry hermits up by the village are the descendants of strawberry hermits sure. that were there when there were people around. And they probably learned, it's part of their culture, right. <laughs> if, if crabs can have a culture, to be careful about humans. Not so, down at the other end. And these guys, I mean, we'd take our lunch break, 
And as soon as you open the cooler that has your sandwiches and stuff in it, they're coming out of the bushes. <laughs> oh, it's lunchtime. And they'll climb up your leg. Really? And we'd feed them pieces of a sandwich, piece of bread, or well, a piece of fruit. So they've learned. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they were all over it. Of course, the little Polynesian rats also come out, and they mug the crabs for the pieces of bread. Oh, so you get lunchtime entertainment. It's really quite a show. <laughs> and a rat that'll come up and sit on the log beside you and take a, a piece of bread from your hand. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's Nicomararo is a strange place. So were there seagulls or were they just No, no. The, 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 the birds don't mess with you. Yeah. Except, <laughs> except the juvenile frigate birds. These big guys that can have a six-foot wingspread. If you're walking along the beach, the juvenile frigates have been known, I've had it happen to me, uh, will kind of hover in behind you and bop you on the back of the head with their beak. Why? I don't know. (laughs) Just maybe to see how you react. They're teenagers. (laughs) God. Uh, of course, on Nicku, you kind of take it and try. Yeah, yeah, well, this is Nicomarara. You know, the rules are different here. Well, okay, so strawberry hermits are aggressive at the seventh site. What is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, uh, one of our team members, <clears throat> a fellow named Bill Carter, had a theory about that. He oh. says, well, you know, it was, they remember the castaway. And uh, they look at us and they say, oh, people, the other, other white meat. They say, oh, my God. So, on September 10th, we did the dedication of our plaque to go on Gallagher's the Gallagher's, tomb. yes. And uh, at the ceremony we had, we tried as best we could to duplicate the one that was described in the files as that was done in... 1941 uh, we draped uh, the tomb with a Union Jack flag uh, British flag we also had other flags hung in the on like clothesline on the trees an American flag and a caribous flag and a tiger flag <laughs> we were dressed in our um, tiger uniforms They're uh, our khaki tiger shirts with our well, no, they weren't khaki tiger shirts at that time. We had uh, the the blue expedition shirts, but we all we were all in uniform, Aww. and we sang "Nearer, My God, to Thee." And, really? Yeah, it was. Had uh, they sung that? It had when they had the original um, service? Did they give any details like that? Uh, it would have been typical. I'm I'm not sure whether we made that up or whether we were, but here. I have to tell the story of the mystery of Gallagher's grave. The colony was abandoned in 1963, and Gallagher's mother, back in England, was unhappy that the island was going to be abandoned, and her son was buried there with no one to tend his grave. And of course, Gallagher was Catholic, and there was not sanctified ground right and so she petitioned the government who's still a british colony she petitioned the government to move his remains 
to Tarawa, where there was a Catholic cemetery uh-huh. on, on Tarawa. And in 1968, as it turns out, we, we later learned this. We had no idea this at, at the time in 2001. We later learned that in 1968, an expedition went to Gardner Island, Nicomororo. And I don't know, they were maybe doing something else too. I don't know if it was just dedicated to just recovering Kelleher's remains. Yeah. But there, they did send a, a couple of guys with shovels and uh, a coffin. And their job was to go and exhume Gallagher's remains, put them in the coffin, and bring them back. And they retrieved the plaque at the same time uh, they did that. That's why the uh, plaque was missing. Okay, Somebody well, didn't too- steal it. It that's was retrieved so along with Gallagher's remains, supposedly. Now, here's the catch. There was a woman on that trip whose job it was to take photographs of all this. And she was following these guys with the shovels up through to where the tomb was. Now, it's easy to get lost in the coconut jungle mm. on, on Niku. And she was following these guys along, but she needed to change the film on her camera, and she needed some shade. And she found a still-standing abandoned building. I think she probably used the old cistern building. I'm not sure. But anyway, she went aside where it was dark, and she changed the film on her camera, and when she finished, they hadn't waited for her, uh-huh. and she lost them. Wow! And she couldn't find them, so she just made her way back out to the beach, and eventually these guys come back with their shovels and the coffin on their shoulder, obviously heavy, hmm. and they put it aboard ship and off they go. Well, we learned about this later from a book the woman wrote about her adventures in the South Seas and so forth. The photographer. And the photographer, yes. Yeah. And and there was a photograph of Gallagher's new grave in Tarawa. Hmm. And you could see that there's the plaque oh, as a headstone. Hmm. Okay, so it's 2011 now. And Bill Carter, same guy. Is the other other white meat? Bill and I are in Tarawa doing archival research, and we say, "Well, as long as we're here, let's go visit Gallagher's grave." And we go, and uh, we can't find it. We look up and down in the cemetery, and there's the plaque's not here. Huh. And we go back and we look at the photograph, and they say, yeah, but these other headstones that appear in the photograph are here. The grave had to be this one right here that doesn't have a headstone. Oh, weird. So we went and talked to the bishop of the diocese that was there. Yeah. And he said, yeah, um, there was a big scrap drive here a couple of years ago, and that plaque just disappeared. Some, so this time it really was stolen. Oh, jeez. But we said, well, uh, did anybody ever like confirm, ever open that coffin to make sure the, the bones? Are... No, nobody ever opened that coffin. I said, well, we're curious about something because we've been to that tomb on Nicomororo and it's never been disturbed. The, hmm. to, to get the bones out of that thing, you would have to dig in under the side of it 
And if you dig in under the side of it, the whole thing is going to tip over. Oh. And that, that never happened. Interesting. And we're wondering if the guys, because the photographer wasn't there, and these are just a couple of guys with a job, and they look at this, and boy, this is going to be a real bummer of a job. <laughs> Tell you what, let's just take the plaque, and we'll we'll put some coral blocks in the in the coffin, make it heavy, mm-hmm. and we'll just say we've got the body, and nobody's going to open the coffin, and they didn't. So there might not be any human remains in that coffin. I said, we don't know. But we can't see how there could be based on the appearance of the grave that supposedly was exhumed. And he said, well, I want to know because this there's there's a real shortage of land on uh, Tarawa. Oh, my. And that <laughs> is going to use it? If it's... That is prime real estate right out there by the ocean. And we have nuns and priests that we want to bury and that's occupying priceless real estate. Oh my. And I don't want that real estate <laughs> occupied with a box full of bo- a box full of stones. You know, <laughs> you guys need to go and dig that up. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> we did not come here to dig up graves. That is not our job. And we're not qualified to do it. And if if you want to check that out that's that's diocese business that's that's up to you guys but we're just we're just saying that it doesn't make sense so uh, i don't know if they ever did check it or not that's a very but to this day <laughs> nobody knows <laughs> where gallagher's oh. remains remain darn well i i think the fact that they said he was buried where he'd most like to be it seemed kind of a shame to pick him up and move him, but well, yeah, anyway, uh, I get the religious piece. And uh, if he really was there when we sang to him and yeah. dedicated, <laughs> rededicated his plaque, I mean, maybe we just set things right. Yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. Okay, so that was September tenth, uh, two thousand one, and think oh, about that gosh. date for a second yeah really next morning i get up 5 30 in the morning and i've got my sat phone your time yeah time. it's fine it's it's noon time back yeah. in delaware oh god and i call pat <clears throat> and she answers the phone now we've been married a long time and uh, like most married couples i know her mood instantly as soon as she opens her mouth says something and though just the way she answered the phone, I said, oh, my God, I wonder what has happened. Mm. Something terrible has happened. And then she started to describe what had happened. And at that point, we still didn't know all of what was happening. No, no. It was Not kind of an you. ongoing thing. Yes. And I remember standing there on that deck in the dark. What do you mean the towers have fallen? The towers can't fall. This is crazy. And she said, well... Yeah, I, I saw it. It, it yeah. has happened. And, In real time. Oh, so, and I'm standing there thinking, oh, God. Now, I've, I've got to go down into the salon where the team is up and assembling for breakfast. And I know I've got team members who uh, live in and near New York, have mm-hmm. relatives that... Probably no people in New who York. There. No people. I'd say, and... I've got to break this news to him. 
And at I that got, point, you're not even sure what it is, like what the news they, was. I'll tell you something else interesting. I, I, I walked into that room, and I, this is just a, a week or two ago. I was talking to uh, Captain Gifford, our uh, uh, airline, airline yeah. and aviation expert. And we were reminiscing about September 11th and, oh, and where we were and what we were doing. Yeah. He says, you walked into that room and I took one look at you and I said to myself, oh, my God, one of his horses has died. Oh. Which was the first thought I had when I heard <laughs> Pat answer the phone. You know? oh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of stuff really, mm. really shows up to people. Wow. And... So we were getting the, what information we could by sat phone. We could get an Australian news station on the shortwave and a little handheld radio that Jim Morrissey had. Uh, and we rigged up an antenna that, that uh, seemed to work pretty well. And we would just huddle around that and, and get as much information as we could. But we, we of course, saw none of the visual stuff mm. and and didn't until we got home wow. and and didn't appreciate the um, the impact that Literally. this had on the country really and, and until, it was so uncertain yeah and for we're, days so definitely. we're out there and all we can do is get what information we can and keep going with our work yeah. and, and so we just we just kept on with the work and and did what we could you wouldn't even notice the lack of Airlines. <laughs> well, there's another thing where the yeah, we, we, we we knew that all airline services shut down, right? And we're thinking, okay, so how are we getting home? <laughs> how long is this going to be shut down? Mm. Here we are out in the middle of I know. nowhere. There, I mean, there was so much uncertainty. Jeez, every front. Everybody's got a 9/11 story, I and know. ours is a little different than many. Another interesting aspect of that whole thing was that recall that we also had a plaque to the Norwich City survivors. And we got that installed on the engine. And later that week, we dedicated that plaque. Now, the wreck of the Norwich City cost the lives of five British sailors, but also six Arab firemen. These were guys, oilmen, oh, that worked really? in the hold. Huh. And they, of course, were Muslim. Right. Well, if we're going to dedicate a plaque to the crew that was lost, we have to uh, do something appropriate for the British sailors. But what can we do for the Arab firemen? And before we left, I had gone to the mosque in Wilmington, Delaware, and explain to the imam what we were going to do and what we wanted to do when we were having this plaque made. And I said, what, what can we do that's appropriate uh, to uh, pay our respects to those six Arabs that, that died? He said, nothing, because you're an infidel. There's, uh, there's nothing you can do. Wow. I said, well, if... You were there. What would you do? He said, "Well, there are are, are things that that can be said that, that should be said. Could I make a recording of you saying those things and simply play that recording?" He said, "I guess so." 
So that's what I did. Um, I made a recording of the imam saying what, and it was all in Arabic. I have no idea what what. Okay, so here I am on Niku, a few days after 9-11, wow. and we're going to hold a, a ceremony, and it's easy to uh, commemorate the the loss of the, the five British seamen and sing the Navy hymn, Those in Peril on the Sea, and you know. Mm. But I'm going to uh, commemorate six Muslims, and everybody was cool with that. Everybody well, says, okay, yes. yeah, the, 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 these guys didn't have anything to exactly. do with 9-11. Exactly. I think we had one person who said he wouldn't be comfortable doing that, and he mm-hmm. he skipped the, the ceremony. Everybody else was, okay, good. And that's what we did. Mm-hmm. So, in the end, we collected 47 artifacts on that expedition. Wow. And most of them we knew were not associated with the castaway. This was a typical archaeological site. There had been a number of different activities on that site over the years. We knew the artifacts we had, some of them appeared to be evidence of a castaway camp. Mm -hmm. But we also knew uh, there had been a failed coconut planting there and work associated with that. It's very possible that some of the artifacts we had found and seen on the site, like this tank, were associated with the coconut planting. And we know that during World War II, the Coasties came there and did target practice. Yes. Okay, so we've got the remains of that. Coast Guard China. (laughs) Yeah. So you've got this collection of stuff, and it all needs to be sorted out and investigated and identified to the extent we can. Looking back on it, in retrospect, 2001 was the first expedition of all the ones we'd done up to that time in which we made real progress. Prior to that, we had information that indicated this is probably where our heart died. And we had these rumors to check out. And we had done research and gotten publicity that brought forth information that enabled us to get a new information. So it was was all coming together, but we still didn't know uh, for sure where the airplane landed and where the bones were found. We knew knew the bones had been found. We still didn't know where that happened. So the results of the 2001 expedition had, as there often is, negative results. We knew that uh, the plane was not right off the edge of the reef where those funny colored pixels were negative. Right. We had done the Lagoon Delta and uh, near the Lagoon Passage Delta with metal detectors, found nothing. There was nothing there. We had looked along the shore of the little peninsula out in the lagoon where old Pulakai Songovalu and Funafuri had told us he'd seen airplane wreckage. Uh. But there was nothing there anymore. So that was all negative. But we had positive results. We had looked at the reef north of the Norwich City Wreck as a possible place to land an airplane mm-hmm. at low tide. And you could ride a bicycle out there. Okay. I mean, it was plenty long enough, plenty wide enough. Now, you can't 
land and then taxi up to shore where it's safer because as soon as you get away from the outer edges near where the waves break, it gets really jagged and rough and pitted. You, you couldn't do that. Yeah. But that, so that all made sense. You know, they land out there, they send their radio distress calls, but they, they can't get the airplane someplace safe and they ultimately lose it to rising tides and surf. So that was a real positive result. I mean, that, that part of the hypothesis checked out. And of course, the seventh site, bingo. Yes, mm-hmm. this, is, this is looking really good. Now, there's no smoking gun discovery, okay? Yes. No, <laughs> no whiff of... <laughs> no whiff of gun smoke, okay? Mm-hmm. And because of that, our sort of sponsor, Mike Gammerer, <laughs> didn't end up doing anything. I mean, he had all this videotape shot, Mark Smith and the sound man, they got all this videotape, and they never did anything with it. Uh. But he ultimately just said, ah, oh, you can have it. So we can, we have all yeah. that video, and it's a great video. Yes. And now we have, uh, we can use it, and we have used it in television documentaries. So mm. it all worked good. Mike went off and decided our whole hypothesis was wrong. And the airplane was uh, undoubtedly on the bottom of the ocean up oh. by Holland Island. And he was going to develop underwater search technology that was going to find it. And he went out and spent a whole lot of money trying to develop something that never turned out to wow. do anything. So that all piddled out and he eventually died. And so, But we had our expedition and we had our, our results. Mm. Uh, we knew that we needed to survey that reef because the credible post-loss radio calls should match times when the water on the reef is low enough for Earhart to be able to run an engine to recharge the battery upon which the radio depends. The airplane's got to be on its wheels, and they've got to be able to run an engine to recharge the battery. And you're not going to send calls on the transmitter if the engine's not running because you use the same battery to start the engine that you use to send radio calls. And if you run the battery down sending radio calls, you can't get the engine restarted, and now you really are up a creek. So it only makes sense for her to get the engine started and then make calls. Well, do the credible calls match the times when the water's low enough on, now we know the section of the reef. Right. We, We can test that hypothesis. But to do it, we have to survey the reef surface. We've got to know how high that reef is off sea level. Right. And then hindcast the tides. We've got to measure this thing down to a few inches. Sure. And how high the radio is in the plane. Yeah. That's going to take some work. we got to come back and survey that reef. we got to figure out how we're going to do it. And uh, there's a lot involved in that. Yes, there would be. we, We need to do that. And, of course, we need to go back to that seven site. Enlarge the excavation. There's more stuff there. Uh, yes. We found enough to indicate that, yeah, we do seem to have the right spot. So we do need to in, in, enlarge that excavation and see what else we can find. So that's that's pretty good. You know, you end an expedition. Knowing have, what you're going to do the next. Knowing what you're going to do next yeah. time, but have, having answered some important questions. The first time we'd ever been able to do it. We've been <laughs> working on this thing since 1988, and now... We've got some answers yes, and a promise of more answers if we can get back out there. Mm. So we were pumped. Yes, we I were bet. 
we're ready to keep going. And it'll be interesting to hear how what you what you did with the artifacts, like how what that led to. Yeah. Are there any? Yeah, there there's uh, there's more to the story to be told there too, but we'll do that in the next episode. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. This episode of the Earhart Expeditions was recorded using our new recording system. We'd love to hear what you think of it and any suggestions you might have for how we can make this podcast better. My email address is rick, R-I-C, at tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R, dot org. That's rick, with an O-K, at tiger.org. Thanks for listening. The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's 12 expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.